Today we come to the end of John's lengthy uh, and rather dazzling depiction of the descending bride, the temple city, which we said is the church and is the centerpiece of the new heavens and the new earth. That description comes to an end today. This is our second to last sermon on the book of Revelation. So there's one more after this. But after this, John um, engages in a series of exhortations. So today we're going to look at the text under these two headings. They're there in the back of your bulletin, back inside page, the temple city and the restored Eden. So first, the temple city. We're in Revelation 21, chapter 21, verse 22. So surprisingly, John sees no temple in the city. This is surprising, especially to a first century Jew, because the old Jerusalem had a temple at the very heart of its life. Even when the prophet Ezekiel looks forward in his grand vision to a restored Jerusalem, he sees a temple in the city. But Jeremiah, on the other hand, and, and John is drawing on Jeremiah here, Jeremiah pictures the scene differently, the final temple differently. He says this in Jeremiah chapter 3. He says, In those days they shall no more say, The ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, or be remembered, or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. And all nations shall gather to it in the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And so... John is following Jeremiah here in a richer fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. And the reason there's no temple in the city is that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, the text says, are its temple. Now, of course, we saw previously that the whole city is a temple. It's very important not to forget this in this grand scene in Revelation 21 and 22. The church is the temple. The whole city is a cubic holy of holies because you are, and it is, the dwelling place of God, his habitation. So God and the Lamb are its temple because their presence makes the whole community a living temple. This is the reality of the church as the body of Christ. Come to its fulfillment. It's a reality which has already been tasted, inaugurated in Jesus Christ. Remember, when Jesus appears in John's Gospel, which speaks of the Word being made flesh, He's the one in whose flesh the glory of God, which filled the Old Testament temple in a cloud, in His flesh that glory descends and tabernacles among us, John says. And so John speaks of Jesus as if he is the temple. And then Jesus speaks of his own body, his own physical humanity, as the temple. Tear this temple down and I will raise it up in three days. That Jesus, now raised, pours his spirit out on you and says, you are the temple of God in the spirit. And so there's a kind of Mutual thing going on here. The church is the temple because God is her habitation, her sanctuary, her temple. 
and she is his dwelling place. But or put more simply, God dwells in us, we dwell in God. So God can be called the temple, we can be called the temple. It's a beautiful thing. It's the very heart of what Christianity is about. God inhabits us, we inhabit God. It's easy to lose sight of this. We'll come back to it, but this is the heart of the Christian faith. Communion with God, it's easy to get our minds cluttered. John's a declutterer. And so from here to the end of the chapter, the end of chapter 21, John draws very heavily, almost word for word in some cases, on Isaiah 60. And Isaiah 60 is one of these prophetic pictures of the restored Jerusalem. It was our Old Testament text this morning. So these words are from Isaiah 60. Listen to them, and you'll hear the echo of them in John's proclamation. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. It's in fulfillment of that prophetic word that verse 23 in our text says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. John sees Isaiah 60, along with Ezekiel and a whole bunch of other passages, fulfilled in this eschatological coming city. Whether there's an actual sun or moon in the new creation is hard to tell, and it's really not John's point. But his point here is more basic, and it's really much more profound. His point is that the light-bearing purpose of the sun and the moon in the first creation is fulfilled. It's just refracted light anyway from the God who is light. And now it's been escalated to this higher plane in the pervasive glory of the light-giving God. Thus the new luminaries are the glory of God and the Lamb. It's a majestic picture. When we say God is light, we mean He is His own glory, His own splendor, His own radiance, His own effulgence, His own iridescence. And that light we are destined, as we will see, to see. And specifically, remember in the Old Testament there was a menorah, a lamp, That's the reference when John says the Lamb himself shall be their lamp. There's no temple, there's no menorah. And then in verse 24, we get this surprising, I think, and heartening word of hope. Again, drawing on Isaiah 60 and other large tracts of the prophetic tradition, John says, by its light, the light of the city, the nations will walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The nations. And the kings of the earth, which have been depicted in the book of Revelation almost uniformly as hostile, as opposed to the church, as in league with the beast, even to the end, even after the millennium, they're depicted this way. Here, they're depicted as bringing their glory their good deeds, and indeed their honor and praise into the city of God. It's an astonishing image, and it should be an encouragement to to a reader of the book of Revelation. In fact, a careful reader will wonder just where these nations came from. 
it looks like they've been judged three times over at various passages in the book. And here they are with their glory and honor, which are wedding gifts, by the way. They're sanctuary adornments. They function much like the jewels and the stones which adorn the foundation of the city. They're brought in, if you will, to adorn the bridal people of God for their everlasting praise of God. So, in the midst of all of the the trauma of the book of Revelation, God makes the witness of the church effective. Mysteriously, the judgments of God, together with the witness of the church, does, in fact, bring about a rich harvest from all the nations. And that's depicted here. It's been depicted earlier in the book. We'll come back to that. So in verse 25, we're told the city's gates are never shut by day. This is because there's no longer any threats. Remember, we're on the other side of the final resurrection and judgment here. The point of the gates being open is not that people are wandering outside and coming back in. It's that there's uninhibited access and there are no threats. There will be no night there, the text says. Because night is the time when gates would normally be shut to defend a city. There's no evil. There's no darkness. Thus, there's permanently open gates. These three verses here, verse 24, 25, and 26 are taken wholly from Isaiah 60. So it's important to see that John's vision, this vision here, is no newfangled thing. A careful Bible reader will get to this passage and say, ah, this is the fulfillment of what the prophets have spoken. Right? John sometimes reworks the tradition, but he's describing nothing less than the final fulfillment of the expectation of the prophets of Israel. Again, this is why the book is so important to us. Without this book, that expectation is just dangling. There's no other book in the New Testament that does this. But all of this still lies in the future for the churches. Right? John associates these events with the age to come, with the descent of the heavenly city. But he knows that his readers are not there yet, so he gives a warning. The first of many closing warnings in the book, in verse 27. He says, nothing unclean or impure, which here would mean defiled by Babylon and the beast, will enter into it. Nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. He has false professing Christians in view here. Again, he's reminding us, he's reminding the church... He's stirring us up against compromise with all Babylonian beastly sorts of systems. That's a form of false witness, he says. Only those, notice this in the text, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter. Divine election controls who enters. There's no way to get around this stumbling block. It's a wide and merciful election to be sure, but election. If you ask who are the nations that stream in, they are the elect. John is careful to remind us of this. The ones who enter are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And thus the nations enter because they are, as the great hymn puts it, the elect drawn from every nation. And the nations are now viewed as part of this great tribe. 
drawn this multitude from every tongue and every language and every nation which worshipped around the throne in chapter 5 and in chapter 7. The nations are the holy nation from all nations, which is the international nation of the church, the elect. And that's the temple city. So the second point here is a restored Eden. By restored here, when I talk about Eden being restored, we mean restored and escalated, made better than the original. God makes the end like the beginning. This is, very, this is another wonderful function of the book of Revelation. God makes the end like the beginning, only more glorious. So, kind of reading Revelation, in light of the book of Genesis, we get the picture of the whole story. If Adam had obeyed, he and his seed would have inherited something like the glory on display at the back end of the book of Revelation. God makes the end like the beginning, only more glorious. And we see that here in quite a rich way. The angel shows John the river of the water of life. Again, these are Edenic references, references to the Garden of Eden. Eden had a river which flowed out of it. And Eden, the text tells us back in Genesis, had these various precious stones associated with it. And many of those precious stones adorn this temple city. When Ezekiel looks forward and he sees this temple, he sees a river of life, a river of water flowing out of the temple, which brings life and healing to everything it touches. So what is this river of water in this new temple city? It's an image, a picture of this profusion, the fullness of the life-giving Spirit of God. We have communion with God because we experience at this point the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's that Spirit of God which animates the restored Eden. The river of life, bright as crystal, John says. The text says it flows... From the throne, the throne on which God and the Lamb sit. Notice this then. On the throne we have God the Father. We have the Son, the Lamb. And from them flows out the life-giving Spirit. It's a picture of the Holy Trinity in all of His glory and splendor. And verse 2, again chapter 22 now, verse 2, says the water flows through the middle of the street of the city. It enables the life-sustaining fellowship of the city. The Holy Spirit, which you now have, the New Testament tells you that that it's it's a pledge. It's a down payment. Right? It's not the fullness. It's not the house. It's the down payment on the house. The fullness of the Spirit in this text is the house. Right? You, You have just a little bit of it now. An earnest. This is a picture of full communion. And verse 2 continues and says, On each side of the river stood the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. There appear to be two trees of life here. If we ask ourselves, why is that so? The answer is simple. Because this is another escalation of the glory of Eden. 
So John is taking the Edenic picture and he's escalating it. The one tree, previously forbidden after the fall, is now two life-giving trees to which all have access. Now, here we can go back to the beginning of this book. The promises to the overcomers, for example, in chapter 2, come to their fruition here. Here's one of them. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. When a person gets to the end of the book of Revelation, they hear the promises to the overcomers differently. It would be good. It would be a good exercise for you to go back and read the promises to the overcomers in chapters 2 and 3. They are drawn almost exclusively from chapter 21 and 22. They are eschatological promises. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. John is drawing here. We already saw how he's drawing on Isaiah, but he's also, again, drawing on Ezekiel's vision. In Ezekiel's vision of the temple, this water flows out, and it, and it brings fresh fruit, and it has leaves for healing. And John picks this up here. And he says the trees have 12 kinds of fruit. Why 12? I think we can guess this now. Twelve is a number for the fullness of the Israel of God. That's why there's twelve kinds of fruit here. So the temple city is also seen as a fruitful garden. Again, it's important not to lose sight. I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but you are the city. The church is the city. So as these images keep piling up, we have to keep reminding ourselves that the city is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So when you see this temple city as a fruitful garden, we know that communion then with God, with the triune God, in that communion, both the sort of um, you know, country, idyllic, pastoral aspirations of man and the urban city building aspirations of man are met. So you're a country person, there's a, there's a magnificent garden in your future. Not actually, but the communion with God is like a fruitful garden. You're a city urban dweller, well, there's a magnificent urban structure. Communion, in other words, John's point is that communion with the triune God fully satisfies the whole range of human aspirations. And the end of verse 2 says, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. Again, this can't be pressed to mean the nations are continually in need of healing. We're already in a situation where there's no death or pain or sorrow. It's an image about access. The image is that the nations stream into this life and light-giving city. They wade into the water of life and they're healed. What's the healing of the nations? Verse 3 tells us, helps define it. No longer will there be anything accursed or any curse. The nations are healed because the curse is removed from the ground. And the end of verse 3 says, His servants shall worship him or serve him. But we're going to do our priestly work in the, the work Adam failed to do in this new garden temple. And that work, that work that the people of God are going to do is worship. His servants shall worship him. You know, often, and it's part of our human curiosity, I think, 
But ministers get lots of questions to the effect of, you know, what will heaven be like? Will my dog be in heaven? Will this forest that I really like be in heaven only better? You know, this river, will we do this? Will we have that? What about my craft? What about my skill? And, of course, the short answer is, we don't know. But perhaps a more pointed answer is, why would one care so much? The text is saying that your destiny is to be before the face of this God. And that your service and your work is the worship of the triune God. These questions are are natural and they're normal. But given this picture, they can seem rather trite. So verse 4 gives us this stunning promise that contrary to all the saints in the Old Testament, and contrary even to New Testament saints, those, those of us in Christ now, right? we have this only faintly. We have this only in part. The text says this, they shall see his face. This is arguably the most important verse in all of Scripture. I don't like to say things like that. But this is certainly the height of what the book of Revelation is after. This is certainly the destination of the church and the Christian life in five words. They shall see his face. Now, even in the past when God revealed his glory, when he descends in glory in Israel... That glory is veiled. For one, it's hidden in the Holy of Holies. For two, it's shrouded in a cloud. And when that glory appears in Jesus Christ, it's veiled in his humanity. If you looked at it, it just looks like a Palestinian carpenter. I love Wesley's great hymn here, Veiled veiled in Christ the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. It's there, but it's veiled. We, possess, we, we taste of this glory, but it's veiled. We have sacraments and we have words. When Moses wanted to see this glory, God said to him, No man sees my face and lives. Hide yourself in this rock and I'll show you something from behind. These are magnificent, stunning words. They shall see his face. All are now priests, and all servants will worship and see the face of God, the triune God, in eschatological fullness and glory. This is what the whole Christian tradition has called the beatific vision, or the blessed vision. And scripture is full of attempting to orient and turn and direct us to it. Blessed are the pure in heart. I think I mentioned some of these texts a few weeks ago. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see, John there, in that first epistle, that last text I cited, understands that we don't quite yet see him as he is. When he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Not veiled, as he is. In his unmediated splendor. 
I want to say a couple words about this scene. First of all, notice it's seeing, arguably the most important and the most integrative of human senses, sight. Now, of course, God does not have a body. He's immaterial. The The Christian tradition has never held that you see the essence of the triune God with your eyes, even your resurrected eyes. It is always held that this is a kind of spiritual intuition of the soul, a direct, immediate kind of intellectual apprehension of the being of God, which can only be had in glory. It cannot be had now. So if you ask this question, what are we seeing here? The answer is we are seeing the essence, the interior radiance and glory of the triune God. If you ask how we are seeing that, if God is immaterial, the answer is, is it an immediate intuition, an intellectual perception of the soul directly? Now, with your resurrected eyes, you could see the body of the glorified Christ. You could see the radiance and glory of the other saints, but you cannot see the essence of the Trinity. That will be perceived by the soul. This is the magnificent destiny of the church. This is what it means to see his face. So another thing about seeing is when you see something, when you perceive something from afar or from close, when you watch a movie, there's a certain passivity in seeing. And I think that's right in this context. Right, The splendor and glory of God will be there, and we will be absorbing. There's a certain posture of passivity here. This is Mary and not Martha all the way down. I think busy, busy, busy people need to be reminded of this. There's a basic Marian sitting, passivity, at the eternal destiny of your calling in God. Right? The call, the, the, so a lot of people want to know, am I going to have to cut the lawn in heaven? Am I going to have to do this in heaven? Well, I don't know the answer, but I can tell you this. There's a fundamental kind of, of relation that you're going to have to God, and it can be described by a passive sense, seeing, sight. Now, to be sure, it's an active passivity, or you might call it a passive activity. Either one's fine. But it's not getting up and bustling around and cutting the lawn. That's the point. It's seeing. It's aesthetic. It's an intellectual interior perception. And it's the heart of what the church is going to be about in the new creation forever. Forever. Which is why prayer and worship and meditation and reflection and study are important now. Because this is what you're being shaped for. Yes, now we have to cut the lawn. Or somebody has to cut the lawn. Um, But then we are going to rest. This is the eternal Sabbath rest. It's a glorious rest. It's a dynamic rest to be sure. It probably will have some aspects of activity. But when it is depicted, it is depicted as contemplation. It is contemplative. This is why we need silence. We need to stop grasping. 
right? We need to release stuff and we need to reflect. Now, people who are reflective people, who are contemplative people, who are meditative people, who are people of privacy and prayer, are in some ways doing the most important work that can be done. They're preparing for the beatific vision, and they're praying and worshiping for God to be unveiled in glory. In one sense, all prayer leads to this scene, right? All prayer is about this scene, whether we explicitly state it or not. I know I've referenced this before here, but let me say it again, right? There's a sick child, or there's an unemployed person, or there's an array of needs, and we pray for them. But if you scratch underneath that, right, the child will be sick again, maybe in their 90s, and die. The unemployed person will live this whole life with threats. But ultimately what we want here is we want immortality, and we want resurrection, and we want to be beyond probation and beyond threat. It doesn't take much scratching underneath the list of prayer concerns we have to realize, well, these are all going to come back tomorrow, or next week, or next month, from another set of people, or from the same people. So what exactly are we doing with prayer? Well, prayer is communion, incense, offered to this triune God. At the very heart of prayer is, thy kingdom come, I want to see your face. Right? We want not just this child healed, we want the dead raised. It's the same thing with worship. What's the heart cry when the church is gathered to worship the triune God? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It's the day of resurrection, is it not? Which is the foretaste of this day. And we see in a veiled way now, we want to see face to face. This is a beautiful destiny. It is difficult to unravel in human words the beauty of what John sets before us here. Those five words should be inscribed into your your heart. They shall see his face. And not only that, John puts it another way. He says his name will be on their foreheads. In the Old Testament, only the high priest had the name of Yahweh on his forehead. Now all of us can go into the cubic holy of holies and have communion with God. Again, listen, listen anew to the promise made to the conquerors back in chapter 3. Hear it now. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. All the promises to the conquerors in the book of Revelation can be summed up in those five words. They shall see his face. And finally, in verse 5, John summarizes, night will be no more. Night will be no more. Don't need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And, John says, they will reign forever. Not only are the saints priests But now they reign as kings. Now they have a glorious fullness. It is true, we are priests and kings in Christ now. But this picture is that royal priesthood come to fruition. Again, 
the promise to the overcomers? They will sit down with Christ on his throne as he sat down with his father on his throne. Comes to fruition in verse 5. They will reign with him forever and ever. So this text, to conclude, is the climax of the book. It's the hope and it's the desire of the nations brought to consummate fulfillment. And it's so helpful for us, I think, Right, A text like this kind of shepherds us and gathers us and reminds us, I think, because life is busy and it's difficult and we do get distracted. In fact, we have to tend to distractions. This is our deepest desires brought to fulfillment and Proverbs tells us desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So the whole text is a kind of benediction pronounced on you, pronounced on the pilgrim church in advance. Remember, John's writing to people who are still struggling on the ground in Asia Minor. The whole text is a benediction, referring to seeing God's face and being bathed in God's light and having his name placed on us. The text is expressly in doing this, evoking the great ironic benediction from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That benediction, the text of Numbers tells us, was how the sons of Aaron, the priests, placed the name of Yahweh on the people. To have the light of God poured out upon you is to have the name of God sealed on you. And that glorious benediction there is answered in our text. And in the meantime... We're in this already-not-yet situation. We're in the vicissitudes of life, stranded between the already and the not-yet. We groan. We have a down payment. And again, the text is trying to reorient our desires. The text is saying longings which displace or obscure this hope are going to dehumanize you. They're going to disappoint you. We are nothing but bundles of desires. <laughs> some are good, some are not so good, a lot of most of them are mixed. Revelation is a desire sorting out kind of book. So again, this vision cannot be tended to once. You have to absorb it and be ravished by it, animated by this hope. Ask yourself, where am I going? Where are we going? What do we want? We're going to this temple city garden. But you know, an even better question is this. To whom are we journeying? To whom are we journeying? We don't have any other destinations. There's not multiple off-ramps here. We want to see the face of God. We want his name put on us. We want to be illumined by his glorious light. We can have no other ultimate desires. I love the first chapter of 1 Peter in in this regard where he says that you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance kept or reserved in heaven for you who are waiting for the salvation of God to be revealed. Therefore, he says, fix your hope entirely on the grace to be brought to you at the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Right, this is the aspiration of the psalmist in Psalm 73 where he says, Whom 
have I in heaven but thee. And besides thee, there is none on the earth that I desire. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart. All our desires are ordered and subordinated to this. Or to put it simply in Jesus' terms in the Gospels, wherever your treasure is, there shall be your heart. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. God is committed, the text tells us, to bringing about this full, fruitful communion in this unbreakable, glorious, face-to-face bond in this restored Eden, in the glory of the new creation. Amen.